Many sincere people today confuse law doctrine with grace doctrine. The result of this confusion is a lack of peace and uncertainty about one's standing before God. Perhaps the most misunderstood doctrine in all of scripture is the doctrine of confession. Today, Dr. Bill Petrie will look at why understanding the difference between grace and law is critical when it comes to confession. Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 13 state, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope in the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul penned these words to Titus to instruct him how to put the church in Crete in order. Interestingly, Paul does not instruct Titus to put the Cretan back under the law. Instead, he tells him to teach the grace of God. Notice what Paul says about the grace of God. First, the grace of God teaches us. He does not say, saved by grace, but he have them walk according to the Mosaic law, nor does he say that the law can teach, but that it is the grace of God that teaches us. Second, it is the grace of God that teaches an individual how to live correctly and how to deny the fleshly lusts. The Apostle Paul does not instruct Titus to teach any aspect of the law, but rather to teach God's grace. Romans chapter 6, verse 14 states, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. This verse, more than any other, states why we do not teach nor apply the law to our lives. We do not teach it nor live under it, because we are not under its authority. Oftentimes I hear people say, yes, that is true, but what do I do when I act ungodly? Should I not confess my transgressions to God to get back in a good standing with him? It is questions like these that this podcast will try to address. Uncertainties about our identity and God's ability to forgive are the reasons such questions are asked. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 states, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. This important verse tells me that I have redemption, and that I have forgiveness already. These are things I have. God gave forgiveness the minute I believed. Notice how this was accomplished through his grace. I had nothing to do with it. We can see that we are not doing anything to get any forgiveness from God. Why? 
because we already have it as a present possession. Therefore, I have in my possession God's total forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 states, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Once more, we see a passage dealing with the fact that we have received all forgiveness from God up front. We do not have to do anything to get it or to earn it all over again because God already has forgiven. Colossians 1.14 states, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 2.13 states, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. After reading these verses, can there be any doubt that we have a total forgiveness of sins? We see that all trespasses are exhaustively forgiven. In time past, this was not so. Forgiveness of sins was a major issue under the law of dispensation. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 3 and 4 state, But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. These two verses very clearly demonstrate that the issue of forgiveness was of great importance in time past. We, we read the words remembrance and not possible in reference to total forgiveness in the legal economy. In fact, even after Jesus' ascension, we read what the law says about Israel's forgiveness of sins in Acts 3.19. Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Israel is late as Acts chapter 3 is looking for total forgiveness of sin. Praise God that he interrupted their program to usher in this present dispensation of the grace of God. Therefore, in the here and now, we see the following to be true. 1 Corinthians 1.9 states, God is faithful, by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 states, But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Mark well that the body of Christ has a total forgiveness of sins because our fellowship is not based on law, but grace. We have fellowship based on the fact that God is faithful. It is not based on us doing anything. We do not have to be good Christians. We do not have to bear fruit because my relationship with God is not based on me. 
It is based on the fact that God did and that he is faithful to what he already has accomplished. Once I believe the gospel, I am instantly placed into an unbreakable fellowship with him, a fellowship that is based on the fact that he, not I, is faithful. According to verse 30 above that, that I had mentioned earlier, I then am found to be in Christ. Hence, Jesus Christ is my wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. This, my friends, is a reality the minute you believe. This is why we are no longer under the law. Romans 3, verse 31 states, Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish or bear out the law. By the fact that Jesus Christ kept it, meaning the law, perfectly, and I am in Christ, we establish law. Once more, this had nothing to do with me, but everything to do with the finished work of Jesus Christ. The law has no dominion over me because Jesus kept it perfectly and I am in him. We've already read Romans 6.14, where the Apostle Paul tells me I am not under law, but under grace. What is the ramification of this statement in regards to our discussion? I want you to cons consider the following three verses. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. And I want to note this verse is Israel's program under the law. Romans 4.15 states, Because the law works wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. That is the body of Christ's program under grace. In Romans 5.13, For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed or reckoned to your account when there is no law. Again, this is the body of Christ's program under grace. The definition given for sin by John is the transgression of the law. We can make the following equation then. Law plus transgression equals sin. Paul's statement would make our equation as follows. Plus equal. What is missing is the law. And since the law is missing, there's no transgression. If there is no law, there can be no transgression. There can be no sin. This, my friends, is what the total forgiveness of sins is all about. We in the body of Christ can never have sin imputed or charged 
to our accounts. This is the reality of our position in Christ. We must be careful to not confuse our practice with our position when we discuss this issue, however, because we do know that we do miss the mark and we do sin in practice. But our position is one of total forgiveness of sin. Oh, how marvelous the grace of God is. Many dear people will ask the question, what about 1 John 1.9? The remainder of this podcast shall look at this question. It has plagued many people throughout the history of Christianity. Let us begin with a discussion about who wrote 1 John. The book is written by the Apostle John, but who is he? Let us have scripture tell us about him. Matthew chapter 10 verse 2 states, Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. From this verse we see that John is one of the twelve apostles called by Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry to the nation of Israel. If we read further in Matthew 10, we read the following in verses 5 and 6. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter you not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We see then that Jesus forbade John to go to the Gentiles and restricted him to go only to Israel. We may ask, what about Jesus' commandments before he ascended? Let us see what John does after those commands. In John chapter, in I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 3, verse number 1, we read, Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer being the ninth hour. Is John going to the Gentiles? Nope. He is still in Jerusalem, following the precepts of temple worship according to the Mosaic law. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. In this we see everyone else is scattered. But the twelve apostles filled with the Holy Spirit stay in Jerusalem with the Jews. There is no going forth to the Gentiles here. In fact, nowhere in Scripture do we see John go to any Gentiles. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. 
This verse tells us that John restricts his ministry to the saved remnant of Israel only. He will not go to the Gentiles in this passage. It is very clear that John's ministry is to Israel and them alone. He is one of Israel's apostles who will sit on one of 12 thrones, ruling the 12 tribes of Israel. It is now imperative for us to see where the book of 1 John fits. If we can determine where it fits, we can also decide what 1 John 1.9 is talking about. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 states, Little children, it is the last time, and as you have heard, that Antichrist shall come. Even now, there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. The context of this verse is twofold. First, the context is the Antichrist. John is looking at the Antichrist as being imminent. How do we know this? Our second point answers this question. It is the last time. John is looking to the last days of prophecy. He is viewing a time frame where the Antichrist is about to be revealed. Prophetically, he is looking to Daniel's 70th week. 1 John chapter 2, verse 13 states, I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because you have known the Father. Notice the words John uses here, wicked one. This is one of Satan's names. Also the name of the one that Satan indwells, the Antichrist. And he also uses the phrase, overcomers. Nowhere do we find anyone in the body of Christ referred to as an overcomer. The reason is simple. As I have stated earlier in this podcast, we have already overcome because we are in Christ. In Revelation chapter 12, verses 11 through 12, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they lo loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has but a short time. This verse is talking about the last week, and in particular, the great tribulation, the time of Israel's trouble. Notice again about whom John is talking about. Those who overcome the Antichrist during this time frame. The body of Christ, which is Jesus' body, is already caught out 
It is important for John. It is important for us to realize that John cannot be writing to the body of Christ. It is an impossibility. Revelation chapter 2, verse 9 states, I know your works in tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Revelation 3, 9 states, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before my feet and to know that I have loved you. The issue in at least two of the seven churches that John writes to is that there are individuals who say they are Jews, but they are not. This sounds an awful lot like covenant theology to me. They then belong to Satan. The issue that John is getting at is the ability to manifest who is really a Jew or part of the little flock. First John is written to identify those who are born of Israel. For this reason, we read in 1 John 2.11, But he that hates his brother is in darkness, and walks in darkness, and knows not whether he goes, because that darkness has blinded his eyes. One way that an unbeliever was manifested to the remnant was the individual's attitude toward those who are saved or the little flock of Israel. If an individual hates another person in that believing remnant of the nation, that individual is in darkness or unbelief. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has Eonian life abiding in him. This verse adds further information to the previous one. If a man hates his brother, he is a murderer. They have no life. In that 70th week, this becomes a very important issue. Remember, the Lord said, mother would be against daughter, father against son, etc. 1 John 1.6 states, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. There are those who say they have fellowship, yet they walk in darkness. They lie and are thereby made manifest to the believing remnant of Israel. The issue we read in the seven churches of Revelation is that there are some who say they are Jews, yet they are not. They lie and do not the truth. They are not part of the believing remnant of Israel because they are in darkness. If they are in darkness, they are not in the light. 1 John 1.5 states, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This verse shows us that God is light. 
If God is light, then those who walk in him will walk in light. They must overcome the temptation to walk in darkness. And by doing this, they will manifest the light. 1 John 1, 6, which we read, again, I will reread it. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Verse 8, if we say, that we have no sin. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. First John 1 John 1.10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. Notice I read the phrase, if we say, three different times in these three verses. The issue in these verses is that there are people making a claim to something. What they are claiming is that they are Jews, that they are part of the believing remnant of Israel. We need to distinguish 1 John 1.6 very carefully where it st states, if we say that we have fellowship with him, the consequence is that they are not saved. The claim is made that fellowship is a reality when in fact they are in darkness. First John chapter 2, verse 22 states, Who is a liar but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is the Antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. The lie in First John is that there are those who say they are saved. Again, this takes place during the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy but they have denied the fact that Jesus is Israel's Messiah. This specific lie strikes at the very claims that Jesus made in his earthly ministry. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 states, If a man say, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? The idea here is that if a man hates his brother, he has denied Christ. Revelation 2 verse 2 states, I know your works and your labor and your patience and how you cannot bear them which are evil. And you have tried them, which say they are apostles, and are not, and have found them liars. Notice that these individuals are found to be liars. Their works found them in darkness. What was their work? They made false claims about their position before God. 1 John 1, 7 states, But if we walk in a light, as he is in a light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleans us from all sin. Those who have sinned in this time frame are one with each other in light. And it is based on the fact that the blood of Christ cleanses them. 1 John 1.8 states, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
Verse 8 here shows a false claim by the one who walks in darkness. Notice again the phrase, if we say, which identifies the individuals in this verse back to verses 6 and 10. 1 John 2, 4 states, He that says, I know him and keeps not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. The whole issue comes down to the Mosaic law. If someone does not keep the commandments and yet says, I know him, that individual is a liar and the truth is not in him. We can contrast this with the following verse in 1 John chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. My little children are the believing remnant of Israel. Let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. John chapter 8, verse 44 states, you are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Remember 1 John 3.15, where the individual who hated his brother was called a murderer? Why? Because they are of the father, the devil. And he is a liar. All who are liars are of the devil. I say all this to now go to our main question. What about... 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.10 says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The only conclusion we can make about this verse is that the ones being cleansed are the unsaved. Why? Because verse 7 tells me that the saved are already cleansed. Verses 8 and 10 are verses dealing with those who are unsaved. The context of verse 10 is the unsaved. John is writing this passage to show how an unsaved Jew is to be saved during the 70th week of Daniel. We can now safely make the following four conclusions. First, confession is a doctrine of law, not grace. Second, confession of sin deals with Israel and not the body of Christ. Third, Confession of sin deals with judgment and tribulation. Fourth, confession of sin always has a physical aspect or ceremony. We'll look at this. Look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 2. 
In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. We see the context in Daniel is one of judgment. Israel was carried away to captivity. In verses 3 and 5 of Daniel 9, we read the following, And I set my face unto the Lord to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him, and to, to them that keep his commandments, we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Let us put our attention on a phrase, we have sinned. Daniel is thus viewing himself as part of the nation. He confesses his own sin in verse 4 and then puts it into the context of the nation. Notice also the physical aspect of his confession with the words, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. In Daniel 9 verses 11 through 13, we read, Yea, all Israel have transgressed your law even by departing, that they might not obey your voice. Therefore the curse is poured upon us, and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him, and he has confirmed his words, which he spake against us, and against our judges that judged us, by bringing upon us a great evil, for under the whole heaven has not been done as has been done upon Jerusalem, as it is written in the law of Moses. All this evil is come upon us. Yet made we not our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth? We can see from these verses that Daniel views himself in the context of the nation, under the law, and being judged according to the law. In verses 16 through 20, O Lord, according to your righteousness, I beseech you, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins... And for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are become a reproach to all that are about us. Now, therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications and cause your face to shine upon your sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. O oh my God, incline thine ear, and hear, open your eyes, and behold our desolations, and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you for our righteousness, 
but for your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do defer not for thine own sake. O my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. And whilst I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. From these verses in Daniel, we see how the doctrine of confession was supposed to work. Pay attention to the fact that all four of our points are covered in this interesting passage in Daniel. All four are covered. The first one, it's a doctrine of law, not grace. How many times did Daniel reference the law of Moses? Confession of sin deals with Israel and not the body of Christ. And again, Daniel did confessing for his sin and the sin of his people, Israel. Confession of sin deals with judgment and tribulation. And God had Israel under great judgment and captivity at the time of Daniel's writing. And Daniel alludes to it. And confession of sin always has a physical aspect or a ceremony, sackcloth and ashes, prayer, fasting. These are all things that Daniel mentioned. Mark chapter 1, verse 5 states, And there went out unto him all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. Once more we grasp, grasp our four points in this passage. The passage deals with the law as Israel was under the law at the time of John the Baptist performing these baptisms. The baptism is the ritual being performed. It was all the land of Judea, or Israel, that was involved in this confession. If we compare Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, we see that the baptism was to flee the wrath to come. The idea of judgment is contained with the issue of baptism in Mark. Oh, many dear saints will be asking about now, what should we do when we do not walk in a way that God would approve? This is a very good question, which deserves a very brief answer. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 states, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. Repentance simply means a change of mind. 
We change our mind about what we did. We do not feel guilty. Guilt can only bring damage. We do not confess, as we have seen in some detail, because we are not under the dominion of the law. We simply change our mind about the behavior. The Roman Catholics will say we should perform penance. This means to pay a penalty of some kind. It is interesting to note that penance is never found in your Bible. We do not have to pay a penalty because Jesus Christ already paid any penalty I would have to ever pay. There is no double indemnity. He was the perfect sacrifice. And by being that perfect sacrifice, my penalty has been wiped clean. Protestants use a word called penitence. This means to feel sorry for sins. The problem with this word is it also is not found in your Bible. It fails to recognize that your sins are already dealt with. There is not a sin that can be imputed to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 states, For godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world works death. Penitence produces worldly sorrow, a sorrow where we go through some ritual to try to get back into God's good graces. We call this sorrow by another name. Often, it is simply called guilt. Guilt is an inward reflection. Guilt is a thinking process that he has to focus on self. Anytime we focus on self, we have created a system for our failure. Our verse says that godly sorrow is produced. This leads to salvation, not from hell, but salvation from defeat in our Christian walk. This type of sorrow does not produce guilt. It produces repentance or a change of mind, or change in a thought cycle that produced the erroneous action. If we all learned to walk in grace, we would never have to go under a defeated system of works. I thank God that I live under an identity-based acceptance rather than the failed system of performance-based acceptance. Oh, how great the grace of God is. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11 states, for behold, this self-same thing, that you sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you. Yes, what clearing of yourselves. Yes, what indignation. Yes, what fear. Yes, what vehement desire. Yes, what zeal. Yes, what revenge. In all things, you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Verse 11 is the best description of how godly sorrow works. It produces a total change of thought. It is not an inward reflection such as penitence, which leads to guilt. 
It is not the paying of a penalty such as penance. Rather, it is a total clearing of the thought process that led to the evil actions that were committed. It, re it produced a total new way of thinking. Brothers and sisters, please grasp your identity-based acceptance, which is given to you by the grace of God, and the instructions for you are found in the Apostle Paul's writings. This will liberate you. This will clear you. This will find you approved before God. It is the only conclusion left us. We rest on what Jesus Christ accomplished. The body of Christ has no part in the doctrine of confession because the body of Christ is not under the law. If we would but realize this, we would see people enjoy the freedom that the total forgiveness of sins has wrought through God's grace in this dispensation of grace. Many dear individuals would finally experience the freedom from the law that grace has produced. We should all rejoice in what Christ has already accomplished. Good day and God bless. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast.